Hello and welcome. Today I'm going to be talking about uh, World War II and the Pacific Northwest and the effects World War II had um, in the region. And so to kind of set the stage, um, by the 1920s, the Pacific Northwest had a booming economy between the gold rushes and technological advancements of the era. The railroad systems were propagating towns left and right, and cars and planes were becoming more commercially available. The region was fruitful and perpetually growing. Industrial giants like Boeing, which is a airplane manufacturing company, and um, like Seattle and Portland shipyards were um, emerging and providing jobs uh, to the region. And so when the, um, when the Second World War begins, the area sees a relocation from uh, what the government deemed as unessential jobs to those that aid in the wartime effort, such as the timber industry, plane warehouses, shipyards, mines, and other manufacturing sites. So they became even bigger, and um, actually Boeing would become a major player in World War II. In 1940, Boeing would create the P-51 Mustang. It was one of the fastest jets and most popular for the war. It's, it's easily one of the most recognizable when you look at those old pictures. And they would make 15,586 Mustangs within a two-year span. And their prowess with jets uh, doesn't end there. They would also make the B-47 Stratajet, and it would set a transcontinental speed record in 1949. But most importantly, they would um, design and manufacture the B-29 Superfortresses for military use. The B-29s were used to drop uh, nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a retaliation for Pearl Harbor. But this bombing didn't happen overnight. It took years to develop nuclear warfare and to build the bombs. The government would go on to develop the highly secretive um, Manhattan Project. And for this project, they needed three locations. Um, Hanford, Washington, would provide the perfect climate um, and have the acreage available to facilitate this, uh, the production of plutonium. They would need 500,000 acres for the site because they need two buildings with enough space between them for safety measures. Hanford uh, would be officially selected in January of 1943 and the residents of Hanford um, area including White Bluffs and Richland were given a 90-day notice to abandon their homes. Um, the Native Americans from this area were not immune to these developments either. The Wenepam lost access to their traditional home and were forced to settle elsewhere. Um, on February 19th of 1942, the entire West Coast would be deemed a military area, area and displace even more people from their homes. This was because of Executive Order 9066. The target of this executive order was to relocate the Asian communities along the West Coast. Within six months, 112,000 people would be moved to assembly centers, and nearly 70,000 of these evacuees were American citizens. And some of the Japanese in particular would be sent to Puyallup and then to Minidoka, Idaho. Among these Japanese would be Takuichi Fuji, and he was an American citizen and had been living in Seattle for 25 years, establishing himself among the art world. So 
at 50 years old, he, his wife, and two daughters would be subjected to incarceration. Because uh, Fuji was an artist, his journal would be illustrative and the images are done in grayscale or black and white with India ink on paper. Sometimes he would use watercolor and they were daily drawings that he would make. One of his first drawings is of him and his family on the floor with their things packed. It is titled An Evening of Reluctance. Um, the entry goes on to read as uh, Finally, tomorrow morning, we must say farewell to the house to which we have become so accustomed, naked, having disposed of our shop, furniture, everything in a muddle, we packed only the absolute minimum of personal belongings, clothing, and bedding. Our home, which is now empty, feels sad and cold in the dim light. Since we had no bed, we got on our coats and making a temporary bed, slept together like sardines in a can, but, but, but because we could not sleep, we were up before dawn. Having taken our last breakfast, we waited for the time to pass. All my family looked anxious. And there's another really moving image that he made um, and it's captioned with, here are the gravestones of several of the dead, the first sacrifices among the relocated. Always the graves are ready. Everyone, please quickly. And um, what is assumed about the last phrase, everyone, please quickly, is that he's quoting the military personnel who are guiding them to the next internment camp. They're rushing them. They don't even get a chance to mourn those they've buried and just those that have passed during transportation. And um, so he, he depicts very thoroughly the transportation and the deplorable living conditions. Um, but in the background of all of his pictures, like almost all of them, there's this pervasive fence, barbed wire fence looming in the background. It, you know, it just, as the observer, you feel trapped. So, but then there's also, um, but then there's also depictions of holidays and celebrations and how they're able to keep some of their Japanese traditions by making mochi on New Year's and having kabuki plays in the assembly halls and even an Oban festival. You see them trying to have some semblance of daily life between the lines at the mess hall and um, he, he even depicts uh, a natural phenomena of the black blizzard that happened in the region. Um, and this was really common during the Great Depression with the Dust Bowl. And when he does talk about news events, you get a sense of how much these have an effect on him and other people in the internment camps. One of the images is uh, of just a newspaper titled 20,000 Japs Dead. Nothing else is added. Almost everything is labeled in the journal except the last eight pictures. And what these last eight pictures um, tell us is the end of the war. People are listening to radios. They're hearing the voice of their emperor for the first time. Um, people are packing up or loading into cars. It shows the animals that they raised and now have to abandon starving at these at these camps. Um, military members are passing out orders um, or giving directions. And um, one of the most notable final images is a vortex of Japanese and U.S. flags. And I think it really captured what it meant for him to be a Japanese American during this difficult and tumultuous time and the complex emotions experienced by many. And another image um, is 
uh, titled August 14, 1945, and Fuji painted a watercolor um, depicting the victory over Japan. This was different from so many had done before because it was so colorful and vibrant. Um, there's people in the background and flags, and um, one of the things he does is he has buildings in a crooked nature and so everything else is standing upright but one of the buildings in this bright red picture is um, has uh, Japanese architecture with um, the kanji on it and so you can see that he has the these conflicted feelings while Takuichi Fuji may not have been the only artist um, that recorded his life in an internment camp. He still gave almost daily entries and um, his work would be like reworked and shown in newspapers across the nation. And um, as the Japanese Americans and Japanese um, came back to their homes, homes that had been abandoned and trying to reclaim their businesses that were just have people in them and owning them outright. Um, there were two organizations that were really helpful um, with allowing them to get back to their normal lives and that was the Seattle Council of Churches and the Civic Unity Committee. Um, they helped promote and coordinate the local Japanese and even though Executive Order 9066's um, purpose was to displace all of these Japanese Americans or Asian Americans, the population basically returned to their pre-war number, so it was basically pointless. Um, and I hope that through the work of Fuji, and acknowledging this past we have. I hope that we are strong enough and kind enough to avoid repeating these hateful actions.